All right, welcome to Sundays with Stories with Stanton Peel. I'm Zach Rhodes. Stanton, nice to be with you. What better way to spend a Sunday morning, you know, with uh, cream cheese, bagels, lox, and coffee <laughs> and stories for Sundays? This is not exactly a story, but people should like this because if there's ever, um, if there's a purpose for us doing this is to uncover a sort of script that people are tacitly asked to follow about what addiction is and what it, how they need to treat it and how to treat other people or even themselves. And it's almost like someone knew that and just handed you the, the blueprint so that we could discuss it, which is what we have today. So let me look at the name of this person, but um, don't give us uh, don't name the person, maybe the organization. That's that's what I yeah, that's what I'll go for. There's a there's an organization called Positive Resolution Films or uh, Revolution Ventures, and they had asked you, I mean, said something about appreciating your work and sort of recognize you as an expert in the topic of addiction, and wanted you to participate in a in a documentary. And I and you wrote back and said, yeah, sure, you know, it sounds great. Send me the questions, and and then you sent. The questions to me and you know it's like take a look at this and it's all they're very leading like there's not really room to have your own opinion and there's certainly no for all of for everything they said about appreciating your work there's certainly no indication that the person who sent it knows anything about your work or even has a place in their mind for your work so uh, I just want to go up. There's, I think, 15 questions. We won't have time to go over all of them, but I would love to go through some of these questions to show what seem to this whole company to be perfectly reasonable questions to ask an addiction expert. They think that they're asking these sort of like open-ended questions when clearly they're not, and they uncover some of the thinking behind some of the most, I don't know, ridiculous stories that we hear about addiction that that can't be true, and also which prevent other people from telling their stories, as we've been doing for some celebrities that we've talked about so far. So um, it, it, this is a way, as you described for us, to get into the purpose of Stories for Sundays or Sundays with Stories, um, which is we're uncovering, there's an underlying almost universal agreement about addiction. And unfortunately or fortunately, we don't agree with it. It's not our misfortune. The misfortune is that the underlying vision of addiction is wrong and destructive. Mm. So we've got as our little mission in life to uh, dismantle, deconstruct this underlying vision of addiction. And um, it's impossible to do that because everybody weighs in on it it's an underlying part of our culture's thinking among all groups. So uh, uh, I'm going to introduce an, in, uh, a musical interlude here. We have an impossible dream. This is our quest to follow our star, no matter how hopeless, no <laughs> matter how far. I thought some music for Sunday would, you know, help out. Music with Sundays. Sundays with music. <laughs> and so everybody agrees with this model. And I'll just take one example that just struck me. Um, you were at the 2018 International Drug Policy Alliance Conference. Mm. And I read about the conference other than your being there uh, in an article in Forbes, which is a libertarian magazine. Lessons from the Drug Policy Alliance Biennial, Biennial Conference. 
as was discussed in the panel, the overdoses crisis in our backyards, the medical field treats drug abuse as a behavioral issue, but doesn't do the same for diabetes or heart disease, both of which can be attributed at times to sedentary lifestyles and poor diet. Lifestyle choices that may exacerbate a genetic predisposition. Addiction is a genetic involuntary and can happen to anyone. So let's just get what's happening. This is at a reformist convention that you attended and spoke about our work at. Um, it's by the person delivering this is um, uh, the chair of the board of students for sensible drug policy. Mm. So it's a young person at a reformist conference and her gripe is that doctors don't see addiction enough as a disease. They don't realize how involuntary and genetic it is just because it has something to do with the behavior. And I, I wanna just throw in a footnote here. Who is she arguing with? Of course, there's the American Board of Addiction Disease, Addicted Diseases, which is run by Nora Volko, created by Nora Volko, which has made the disease theory embedded in American medicine. But in fact, general surveys of physicians, family physicians, finds that 90% of them don't follow addiction as a disease. Mm. And I'm gonna start lobbing things at you unfairly. Well, Why but first, first let, me, let me do my best to steal man this person's argument. It could be, and this is the best version of the, it could be of her argument. It could be that, she, and that Maya Solovitz often does this. It could be something like, look, you want to call it a disease. Well, why would you treat it this way if you're calling it a disease? Why don't you give the benefits of it being a disease? Now, I think that either way, that might not be what she's really saying. That would be given really benefit of the doubt. If it is what she's saying, then you've, you've just given up on truth and and you you let them take the frame. So anyway, either way, I could see but both. But let me get back to why don't general practice physicians generally see addiction as a disease and it right. has to do with why i'll throw it back to you why don't they you go to a general family doctor and somebody says they're having an alcohol problem or their child's having a drug problem and they don't go oh that's a disease that they've a genetic disease biological disease why don't they why don't those professionals do that well, I know some do, but if you're going to a family doctor and you have a relationship with them, then they see you as a whole person and they understand that there are dimensions of your life, things that you can do with your life that would counteract whatever it means for there to be an addiction. That would be my presumption. That, that would be number. I have three reasons I came up with. One, a general practitioner isn't going to be convinced that drinking destructively is the same as diabetes. That's true. They're just not uh, why, gonna... why don't they make that link is what you mean? I see yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Oh, it's the same as diabetes. Right, right, cancer. right. Cancer. Doctors can say, no, it's not. And the second reason is because they see the human being as a whole person. So they immediately uh, assimilate the person's life, what they know about them, where, you know, if they're having a hard time, a divorce, they know the person's family. And the third reason is, and this is really most critical to where we're going, it's not helpful. It doesn't, I mean, okay, 
oh, you've got a disease. I actually know what to tell you to do for diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had pneumonia, I know what to do. This disease, well, there's no medical cure for this disease. And what I'm going to do is let's talk about your life. Let's talk about your drinking or your drug addiction. Uh, let's see how we can improve your life and get the uh, different aspects of your life drawn in. And then why don't you come back in six months and we'll talk about it. Do you, think a doctor, gradual... do you think a doctor would say among their cohort, yeah, it's a disease, but they just would never treat a person as though it were? Or do you think? I think the group of people, of family doctors, is a hotbed of anti-disease treatment. Mm. I, I think if you went to a conference and said, it's a disease, I think a lot of people would just start buzzing and say, oh, well, maybe it's a disease, but it's not like other diseases, and yeah, you have okay. to deal with it differently. So, um, ironically, the person who's most associated with that point of view, the disease point of view, Nora Volko, as I've been noting lately, I'm writing my memoir, and I quote that interaction at the Drug Policy Alliance as a way of just showing how far gone the entire culture is in thinking about it as a disease. I know about Nora Volko. Um, in 2007, she wrote Addiction is a Disease of Free Will. Mm. And in 2011, she wrote, she was interviewed in the New York Times. She was called a general in the drug war. And... She says to herself, it, the article says, as she repeats to herself throughout the day, it's all about the dopamine. But in 2018, 2019, Nora Volko has been backtracking. And she, I don't want to go so far as to say she's following in my footsteps. She would never mention my name. She mentions Maya's name. Um, but she's feeling a little bit beleaguered. And so, ironically, uh, in 2018, DPA, or some parts of it, sound more like the disease theory than Nora Volko and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. And, so we've got, um, and I'll just give a quick shout out. It traces back to a deal that Ethan Nadelman made originally. He felt he wanted to do things like liberate people from uh, uh, prison sentences for drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted to decriminalize drugs. And the, bar- the Faustian bargain he made to do that was to say, uh, I'm not going to fight the diseased people, but just so long as we don't coerce people and jail people for treatment. But the single underlying thing that most permits coercion into treatment, which the DPA remains, remains uh, resolutely against, is telling people it's an involuntary disease. So they made a deal that can't be carried through. Um, And what are the consequences? Let me just do one one last thing. The consequences, um, in 1997, I've said this before, uh, the former head of the NIDA declared addiction is a disease, a brain disease, and it matters. In 2003, 2000, DPA was created in 2003, Nora Volko became head of the, the DPA in 2007. She declared addiction is a disease of free will. Since 1999, 800,000 people have died drug deaths. The rate of drug deaths has increased per annum, 350% since then. Um, the 
asymptotic rise was between 211 and 2017 when she was interviewed there and said it's all about the dopamine and why she's backtracking now. In 2018, there was a, a 4%, 0.6% decline. And people said, well, we're getting our handle on it as medicine-assisted therapy was spread around the country. In 2019, there was new record levels of drug deaths. And now the data in the pandemic has ushered its way in. 40 out of 50 states have new records for drug deaths as of August of this year. So we have something on which everybody agrees and in which Americans are dying of, from in droves. And that's, we are attacking the underlying structure, which we say is the single most important contributor to that death rate, yep. which somehow we can never reverse ourselves from. And one last thing I'll just throw in just to piss off some more people. Um, we talked last week about the, the trauma theory. I, didn't, I don't know if I mentioned Gabor's name. You did one time. I, w I went to go Mate count and you only mentioned it one time. <laughs> has Gabor Mate sees the world in some ways like we do. Um, he doesn't believe the addictions is genetically inherited. And what he has done with the concept of what's that concept he uses? Do you know the neuro with the word genetic in it? Do you know the phrase he uses? Epigenetic. And what's that mean? <laughs> Something about how culture affects genes from like the social. Let's see, from software, it creates the hardware or something like that. And then it, that, that those genes are passed down the lineage. So something cultural that happens can become embedded in genes. Good. I would say something, uh, when, when, the, when the original movement to identify the human genome was created in 1980, people felt that we would find individual genes that you prick out like candy off a sheet of paper, and there would be a gene for everything. Yeah. What we in fact learned from the Human Genome Project, it's unbelievable, hardly any of our DNA is organized into specific genes. There aren't specific genes for anything. We have only 60,000 individual genes where earthworms have 40,000 genes. Human beings are not created by genes. They're created by complex interactive, facilitative genes, uh, uh, chromosomal DNA material. And Gabor learned about that. Of course, I knew about that from the start, but he's learned about that and he's found a way to translate the fluidity of genetic material into a modern disease theory. Mm -hmm. He says, incorporating all of that it still forms who you are forever. And of course it's now people talk about it being passed along, intergenerational uh, disease theory, uh, trauma theory. And so he has enabled us, the world to update. And Gabor is a great believer in powerlessness. He's a great supporter of AA, a way of incorporating modern disputations against genetic determination, but in allowing um, 
the disease theory to continue despite that. Yeah. And I'll, this is strictly my own opinion. He will go down as the most dangerous and destructive theorist of the first part of the 21st century. And by 2050, I, I won't be alive then, Zach, so I want you to remind people of that. People will have come to the realization that his main contribution was to update a destructive disease theory, which is part of the mass of drug deaths that we see. Um, and that's what we're about. I just want to, before we get into the questions, I want to read, in 1985, I wrote The Meaning of Addiction. Whoops. This is the last paragraph in my introduction. Our conventional view of addiction, aided and abetted by science, does nothing so much as to convince people of their vulnerability. It is one more element in a pervasive sense of loss of control that is the major contributor to drug and alcohol addiction, along with a host of other maladies of our age. We feel we must warn people against the dangers of the substances our society is banned or attempted to curtail but cannot eradicate. This book argues that our best hope is to convey these dangers realistically by rationally pointing out the course of excess and more importantly, by convincing people of the benefits of health and a positive life experience. Uh, behind you, you have the Life Process Program. That's what we do in the Life Process Program, all that we just described there. Otherwise, the idea of addiction can only become another burden to the psyche. Science cannot increase our understanding of ourselves and our world nor can it show us the way to freedom if it is held captive by our fears. Can you, do you have the questions in front of you? Can you read the first question? Do you have yeah. it? I can. Yep, let me, let me pull it up here. First question is, oh, it's a good one. <laughs> why is addiction increasing? Oh, why addiction is increasing in epidemic proportions? And here's the so context. In other words, uh, let's just point out that's not actually a question. Yeah. He's saying explain and then read the context for this. Right, exactly. He's saying basically explaining explain why this thing is true. Increasing addiction is increasing epidemic proportions. Context for the question he says is uh, addiction today is epidemic and, and catastrophic. If we are not victims ourselves, we all probably know someone struggling with a merciless compulsion to alter their mental state through addictions. There are hundreds of addictions ranging from drugs, alcohol, food, tobacco, sex, gambling, opioid, sugar, internet, porn, television, video games, and shopping that destroys millions of people's health, wealth, happiness, and relationships. All right. I know I'm sort of supposed to answer these questions. How do you react to that question as a human being, a father, and a, a coach and a helper? I'm a little bit confused by it. Um, I immediately, I immediately wonder what the second order ask is. But I mean, it's it's crisis mode all the way through. So it's trying to put an exclamation point on this idea that addiction is all around us. Nobody's safe. Uh, makes me feel uncomfortable. It's fear inspiring. The very last thing I said in my introduction is how are we supposed to deal with addiction if we view it as overwhelming, as Nora Volko says, is it the choice your free will? It's all around us and we can't do anything about it. Um, how, how would you say we deal with the fact 
that people have addictive problems and addiction in the world within the life process program. How does our view of things and our emphasis and our way of communicating with people differ from the message behind this question, which isn't yeah. a question? Yeah, <laughs> rule one is that addiction, whether it's to drugs or anything else, just follows all of the rules of any human behavior. So that if somebody, it's an experience that people have and it's something that can be contended with on a rational, reasonable, calm, human basis. And one of the primary things that we say about it is um, we start out by saying, well, it's not a disease. Mm. It's something that you have the power within you to control. It's not overwhelming. We try to bring it down to life-size proportions, especially in regards to your own ability to control your life. And then we help to show them specific ways they can modify their life and their thinking so as to overcome addiction. Our message, our approach is the opposite of this, this scare tactic. Um, so he wants to start out because he's got some film. By the way, I agreed to do something, um, but I didn't sign anything. And honestly, I forget what I agreed to and where this is coming from. Every once in a while I get an email saying, oh, we'll be doing an interview. Maybe I've agreed to it. But, you know, when I read these questions, I thought, you know, if I go on, this show isn't going to be about my point of view of addiction. No. So no. I think I said to you, I sent you the email and said, why don't we answer these questions? Yeah. And um, So you're answering them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why don't you read the second question? Okay. Which is in another, it's got a question mark, but it also isn't actually a question. Right. You could put brackets before the first word. You could say, uh, explain how addiction destroys a person mentally, physically, socially, and economically. You want to read the context for it that they gave? Uh, uh, let's let, we don't have to go into that. So once again, we're overwhelming people. How addiction, how would, would you ever approach somebody you're trying to help by explaining to them how addiction destroys them mentally, physically, socially, and economically? No. What's our approach in life process program instead? First of all, that's anthropomorphizing or personifying addiction as though it's some entity, some being with a soul that's doing something to you. Maybe you with a black cloak over its head. Right. Of, it's right. really out of medieval thinking. But our approach is to ask. You know, if, if it's something's an addiction, I guess the standard qualifications for that is that it caused something causes impairment and distress in your life. So we can ask to the extent that there's impairment and distress in your life, tell us about it. And so that person could tell us if there's economic distress. The so one or, thing we never, we don't diagnose people as having addiction. Right. We don't bombard them with all the negative ways it's killing them. We say, you're worried about something. Tell us how it's impacting your life. And we'd like to know about it. Yeah. And our whole thinking behind it is that this person can gain control by changing the way they deal with it and the way they think. And of course, the primary way we want to change the way they think 
is not for them to think that it's this overwhelming uh, angel of death with a scythe knocking on their door, like something out of a Bergman movie. We want to tell them, we want to empower them. Um, we want to let them know that to the extent that they can become connected to life and believe in themselves and turn, they can turn their lives in a healthy direction. So this whole approach, battering people over the head with the image of this uncontrollable disease of addiction out of Nora Volko and Gabor Mate's playbook is the opposite of what we're doing. And our modest little impossible dream is telling people this, these first two questions are themselves, this way of thinking, the cause of the most destructive addictions and of the fact that people are incapable of emerging from these things on their own. That's our little modest argument that all the developments that we've described, described from the NIDA and trauma theory are actually the causes of the problem. We have an exercise smack dab in the middle of our program. It's a written exercise that, um, that you created, so you know about it. But it asks sort of for an inventory about things that people have or want or will need to do in order to achieve something in their lives. So I have, I want, I need in terms of health or family or finances. And they go down the list and it's, I've gotten feedback that that's the, a pivotal exercise for people where they see they've laid out a blueprint where they can say, I have all of this and I'm grateful for it. Let's lock that in our gains. I want something. All right. And then for some reason, once you say, all right, I have something in it and you kind of talk about what you want, it's like, oh, that's, that's manageable. I could see a way that I could get there. I could break that into steps maybe, but I could, it's not so impossible. And every little, every separate dimension of somebody's life, the things that they need in them are so achievable. And so that's the, the very opposite of what this is saying. It's true. Maybe it's true that addictions are ubiquitous. It, if it's if you think of addiction as a sliding scale, then they can be ubiquitous. There can be addiction all around us, but that doesn't mean that, that the addictions are unescapable or abnormal or something like that. And I took that exercise generally from something called the community reinforcement approach, which approaches people's lives in terms of the various sectors and says, well, how are you doing here? Well, you're maybe doing pretty good here. Let's, that's good. Here you're not doing so well. How can we imagine proceeding in that area of your life? You're baking everything down into manageable sizes because our underlying model, of course, is a developmental model, which we wrote about in Outgrowing Addiction, which is people in general outgrow addiction as their lives stabilize, they acquire more positives, family work, self-confidence and our coaching program's goal is to help them advance in the same way that people usually more often than not advance on their own but which they're a little irritated at the pace that they're going at here's your personal favorite question three why don't you re read that again it's not actually a question how do you know this is my uh, favorite it's, it's true that it is <laughs> it's uh why there is, I love why there is, not why is there, but why there is a rise in opioids addiction in America. Why don't you read the context here? According to research 
I don't mean to laugh. It's not really funny. It's just sort of absurd. According to research, many people begin their addiction from a doctor's office. In 2012, 259 million prescriptions were written for opioids, which was more than enough to give every American adult his or her own bottle of pills. I, I know you have a... I would think this one question would... You at one point actually belonged. Uh, I hope this doesn't give anything away to... A no, county, you can go, go ahead, yeah. A county organization that dealt with... I mean, uh, Vermont's in New England. It has that's one hotspot area in rural mm -hmm. New England for opioid problems. And as agreeable as you are, and anybody watching this can see just how agreeable you are. You it drove you crazy, and you quit. Yeah. Talk yeah. about that. Well, I I'll go ahead and name it. It's called the Chittenden County Opioid Alliance, and I'll name it because they could see me arguing, but I don't think they would argue with the premise of this person's question. I think they agree with it. I mean, they, they couldn't possibly, I would ask practical common sense questions about what does this mean? Or let's put it in a different context or a different frame. Or are we sure that everyone's addictions begin with a painkiller? How, what makes you believe that? Have you thought of, have you ever seen any different instances where people, you know, have lifestyles that lead to addiction. And they would always say yes to each individual question, you know, or, or say something more reasonable, something that contradicts their question. But if I, so if I said, well, why don't we address that? They could say, well, this is kind of a high order problem. Opioids are the problem. And it was just like, a, it's like robots or something like that. Uh, well, that's the whole story I love it about you, Zach. People like Zach, they like you. <laughs> He's such a nice guy, He's so practical. But he does have these crazy ideas. When you get down yeah. to where he's going, he's got these crazy ideas. I use the fact that there. This is 2012. There are fewer prescriptions now. What percent? I mean, the exercise I do that I've done before is, I go, "Oh, has anybody in this audience taken the painkiller?" And everybody raises their hand. And then I say, "Oh, did you become addicted?" And nobody raised their hand. I say, oh, maybe you're embarrassed to say you're addicted. Did anybody in this room, after they took an opioid painkiller, feel, huh, that was an interesting experience. Did you continue it? And then no, a couple of people raise their hand and they say no. And I say, well, why didn't you continue it? And then they say all the stupid reasons, uh, stupid in quotations. Well, you know, I had to go to work. I have a family, I have a partner, I have, I mean, I'm just not gonna keep taking painkillers. The prescription, and of course, 90% of people don't even finish the painkillers in their prescription. So this question is about, it jumps from how many people take painkillers <laughs> to how bad the addiction problem is. I go in the exact opposite direction. I say, isn't it unbelievable? I mean, I happen to know that in the year 2017, 100 million Americans took a painkiller and only about 1% suffered a prescribed painkiller. Oh no, it's prescribed and non-prescribed. Yeah. Only about 1% suffered some kind of negative consequence, including dependence. Isn't that unbelievable? This powerful drug and so few people develop a problem around it and let alone becoming addicted to it. So they're using the logic of how many people take painkillers 
to say, oh my God, we're lost at sea. Addiction's killing us. And we use it as a lever to say, well, doesn't this show, maybe there's too many painkillers, that's not our department, but doesn't this show how in general human beings with well-regulated lives through the normal array of their existence, their families, their work, their desire not to be addicted to drugs, to be labeled a drug addict, avoid that experience. There's a person that I would really like to interview. I, I haven't asked them to do an interview yet, but I think they're willing to for me to put something in print. And it's it was just like your example. You ask a whole room full of people, have you ever taken an opioid? Everyone has. Anyone become addicted? Nobody has. So isn't it magical that in that room are the only, you know, 100 people in the world that opioids don't addict? But this person continues to take opioids and uh, but and carries on perfectly reasonably healthy work, family, just life. And um, she said, I said, well, what made you continue to take them? She said, I liked them. <laughs> You're kind of not allowed to say that without a story behind it. So it's just sort of jarring to hear someone say, it's just so practical. I enjoyed them. We're, uh, we're coming, it's a little bit over a half hour now. Mm -hmm. So maybe we'll cut this and maybe return to these questions and future stories for Sundays. But you began by saying and introducing how we view addiction. Addiction is like every other aspect of life. It's caused by the same things. It's remedied by the same things. It's mm -hmm. balanced by the same things. We don't view, and of course, once you start talking about sex and shopping and videos, that's what I wrote Love and Addiction in 1975. The joke I always make is, I know, I must have been in my mother's womb when I wrote that. How could I still be around if I wrote Love and Addiction in 1975? Is to put heroin, alcoholism, and alcohol was never thought of like heroin back in those days. In the realm of normal human experiences that sometimes go out of control, that people rely on, perhaps it's not the best way to deal with life, but it's just part of the human mix the stew, the soup of life. And that's the best way to understand addiction, the best way to not go crazy and be overcome by fear, if you remember my reading from the intro from the meaning of addiction, and the best way to try and row steadily on your way in life to dealing with life as best you can with or without the addiction, if it's, or with the object of your addiction, and managing that experience is called harm reduction. And what we tell are variations on human harm reduction stories of addiction. So why don't maybe today's, uh, this will end our Sunday for today and we'll carry on in this vein with other cases. I know that that person is one person you wanna interview. Normal human beings dealing with overcoming, not overcoming, using as a part of a constructive life, drugs and other addictions, we could call this the humanity of addiction. Ooh, I, I know that Carl Hart has a book out, uh, Drug Use for Grownups. Not quite out, it's coming out in January. Oh, right, okay, so it's forthcoming. And uh, I'm, so, I'm so determined to get some stories about grownups using drugs responsibly before his book is published. So if we, people listening, and if you want to tell your story, please, I'll send, I'm going to send an email out too, but we'll, we'll get someone to come on. I, I just, I'll throw in two more stories. I just can't avoid it. Stories for Sunday. I, again, I don't think I'm giving anything away about your life. You were put on that county 
commission because you deal with young people. That's mm-hmm. your line of work. And then you had an extra extra bonus in your portfolio, in your resume, that you in one point in time in your life had a heroin monkey on your back. And they must have gone, wow, great. Zach's, you know, it was. We, didn't, we didn't even know that. And that you were the person who was least alarmed. You were the person who was least ready to demonize narcotics and you happen to be the one who was most familiar with them ain't that ironic yeah the second story i want to tell is the first time i met carl hart he was giving a lecture he's being interviewed by john tierney for reason and carl and maya salavis i had never met carl maya salavis was in the audience she had helped him write his first book and she said oh that's stanton field and carl's always been very gracious when he gets up there, he says, Stanton Peel's in the audience. He's the person who led me in this direction years ago. And afterward, and he gave his standard talk, 80, 90% of people who take drugs don't have, including heroin, don't have problems. Heroin withdrawal is not what you imagine. It's not something that kills you. It's something more like a case of the flu. And he went on humanizing and demystifying drug use and addiction. And people were upset. This is a libertarian audience. And a guy came up to me afterwards and said, what he said about drugs and heroin can't be true, can it? And I said, um, you're asking the wrong person now. <laughs> All right, so we'll call that two stories to end Sundays with stories and we'll carry on again next week. We gotta, we gotta get to more of those documentary questions. I just love that they sent you questions in the, with there were question marks on them, but they, couldn't help themselves. Yeah. None of them was a question. Every one of those questions is just like that guy from the, the Reason audience asking you. Anyway, happy Sunday morning, Stanton, and thank you for taking us through this, and we'll have to get to some more sometime later. Bye-bye now.